Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, in this room you'd raise up mighty men and women who are devoted to Jesus, who take enormous risks for the sake of his kingdom, who value your honour even more than their life. And we pray, Father, that you'd raise up through us tonight uh, mighty men and women of God. And Father, for those who aren't sure about who you are, we pray that you'd reveal your son to them tonight, that they would see him as the rightful king of our world. And we pray that you'd just get them the, the information they need to, to be able to make a good decision about him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we're doing this two-week series on risk, um, and I'm really excited about this series. Uh, next week, we're looking at Esther, uh, how to be a mighty woman of God, and today we're looking at David's mighty man, how to be a mighty man of God. And I take it that risk, here's my answer to that question straight up, how to be a mighty man of, or woman of God. I take it that a mighty men and women of God take risks that show the world that you believe that your only security in life is in God. Mighty men and women of God are those who take these crazy risks that shows to the world that your only security in life is in God. Now, let me define for you risk. I take it that risk is simply any action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. It's any action that exposes you to the possibility. So there's chance involved, right? Exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. And so if you take a risk, you can possibly lose money. You can lose face. You can lose friends. You can lose your health. And you could even lose your life. And it's my conviction that if you avoid risk-taking, you won't just not be a mighty man or woman of God, but you'll make God look very small and very powerless because you're not actually banking on him to deliver you from difficult situations. My conviction is, uh, is that sure you can take risks and throw your life away in a thousand just stupid ways, and that wouldn't be loving for anyone. But to choose comfort and security when something great may be achieved for the cause of Christ and the good of others, that isn't a loving thing to do. It doesn't make your Heavenly Father look good, and it won't give you a great life. You will actually lose your life in the process of trying to save it. Jesus says something about that, doesn't he? Isn't that interesting? Here's my assumption. You can't avoid risk. You just can't. It's inevitable. It's woven into the fabric of our finite lives, and that's because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, go home and look up James chapter 4, verse 13 to 15. Here's the thing. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. And this means that God cannot take risks because he knows the outcome of every decision and plan he makes. We don't. And therefore, our life is a series of risks and his life is a series of non-risks. And might I suggest that actually the fact that he risks nothing enables us to step out blindly and face the risks in our life. Because if he knows what's happening and we don't, that actually enables us to set out, step out. And so here's the thing. You can't avoid risk even if you wanted to. I read this 
section of my sermon out to Liz in the car. And she said, Toby, this is a little bit heavy. I said, I know. And so this is, what I, this is what I said to her. I said, you know, you don't know whether your heart will stop beating by the end of this sermon. She's like, Toby, that's a little bit heavy. <laughs> Do people really want to hear that? Uh, I kept going, though. I said, you don't know if the building you live in won't collapse as you're sleeping in your bed tonight. You don't know as you're walking home tonight, you won't get hit by a car head on and die in the hospital later this evening. You don't know whether the food you buy this week won't have a deadly virus in it and you will die. You don't know whether you'll have a stroke and be paralysed this week and you don't know whether you're at Westfield this week sometime as a man with a rifle who won't shoot you, right? You don't know these, these things. Now this is kind of a little bit heavy, right? And I'm, I'm sorry to raise it right at the start. Very, very positive way to start a a sermon, uh, isn't it? But here's the thing, we're not God. And, um, and I'm somewhat sorry for raising a list like that. And the reason I actually raised it is because my wife is, is plagued, actually, by uh, what I kind of call irrational fears. Uh, she, won't walk, she won't hop in elevators because she's terrified by elevators, things like this. And so I really do have a great sensitivity that I've just raised a list of risks and some of you, you're like, I wasn't even thinking about that, Toby. And now you made me think about that. Now I'm terrified. I can't go home. You're actually going to struggle to listen in this sermon. And I'm really sorry if that's you because that would be my wife actually sitting in here. But here's good news for you because I'm praying tonight that God's word would free you and release you from the enchantment to security and that it will propel you forth into taking risks this year. Because what I want to help you see is that it doesn't matter how safe a life you live, you cannot control everything in your life. You, by default, as a human being, you face risks every single day. You, that is out of your control. All of our plans for tomorrow's activities can be shattered by a thousand unknowns. Whether we stay at home under the covers, or whether we venture forth uh, at all. Safety actually is a myth, and it's a mirage, and risk is inevitable. It's woven into the fabric of our lives. And so how do we respond to, to risk? And, um, and what, how we're going to respond is by looking at mighty men and women of God, David's mighty men, and Esther, my favorite lady in the Bible. I wanted to call my daughter Esther, and I wanted to call one of the, uh, I wanted to call my son one of the names of the men in this story tonight, because these men and women they show us how to face the risks that are going to happen in our life. And so, come and look at me at verse eight. Have a look at verse eight. Uh, this is what we read. These are the names of David's mighty warriors, and what follows is an honor roll of David's most esteemed. And loyal troops. It isn't like these, right? Which are lists of boys and girls who managed to suck up to teachers and get their name on a school captain list. That isn't what this is. This is like a, a war memorial list of men or women who have got the, the Medal of Valor, a Victoria Cross. And that's what this group of men is. They're men who have risked their life for the sake of the king. And his kingdom. And so, if you look at verse eight to twelve, I'm going to break this this passage up into four parts. 
verse 8 to 12, you meet the three, and the three is like a, a military title, and they are the commanders of the army. And then in verses 13 to 17, we meet three of the 30. The 30 are like the crack SAS troops in David's army, and we meet three of them in verses 13 to 17. In verses 18 to 23, we meet two men who are above the 30, but weren't part of the three. Okay, and so they kind of became bodyguards and, and kind of lieutenants. And then verses 24 to 39, we meet the 30. Okay, and I've got four points. You see them on your outline there. And we're going to look at these four groups via these four points. And what we see as we look at the first of these is that God would have you today aspire to stand firm like these three commanders. Have a look at verse 8. Josheb Bashabath, a Tuchmanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. So this is the first mighty man of God that we meet tonight. And he is the chief of the three. The chief of the three kind of generals, commanders. And no wonder in a single conflict, he notches up 800 fatalities all by himself. One after the other after the other. That's kind of superhuman strength. Look at verse 9. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodo, Dodai, the Ahohite. <laughs> As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines, gathered at Pastamin for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. So the Philistine army, they gather for battle against the Israelites. Now what you need to know that in the Bible, peace is a great thing, but the Bible's not so naive as to believe that you can achieve peace through pacifism. And very often you see, particularly in the Old Testament, that the government, the state, actually has a responsibility to defend its people, often by force. And that's what we see here. The Philistine army, they come to Israel for war and they line up for battle. And David, who's the king, God has appointed over these people. He stands there and he taunts the Philistines. I love this, right? He's not afraid of them, but his men are, right? And so they all run away except for, except for who? Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Ahahite. Don't you love these names, right? And he was one of the three and was a mighty warrior. He stood by David's side. He stood his ground as the Philistines came in waves trying to kill these two men. They would come and they would rape the women, kill the boys, burn the homes, plunder their treasure. And these two men stand there. Everyone else has abandoned them. And they stand there and they fight and they fight. So long was the battle engaged in that Eliezer's hand, his muscles in his hand, freeze to the sword. I was reading this week in the 19th century when battles were won with swords. Two stories about two men whose muscles in the hand had to be relaxed through warm water. I take it that this is what happened to Eliezer. So vigorous was the fighting. So Eliezer, he stands his ground next to his king. And notice verse 10, verse 10 the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Notice who it is that is the one bringing the victory. They use their skill, but it's the Lord who brings the victory, isn't it? The troops returned to Eliezer, but 
only to strip the dead. So Eliezer is a good man. He kills hundreds, right? But he allows his mates who had abandoned him to strip the dead and to win the spoils of war. Verse 11, next to him was Shema, son of Agi, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together to a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. So the Philistine army band together again. And this time, it's at a field of lentils. Right? And I'm like thinking, why would anyone defend at the risk of their life a field of lentils? Right? And all the vegetarians here are like, amen. Right? We've got to defend those lentil fields. Right? Uh, but what you've got to realize is in, in war, I was actually reading Kokoda by Peter Fitzsimons uh, over Christmas, and it was the villages during Kokoda which the Japanese and the Australian men fought vigorously over. doesn't matter how strong your army is. Without food, they're a dead army. And so that's what they go after. They go after the fields, a food source for their people. And the Philistines line up and all the troops of Israel terrified. So they run away, and you see the Philistines, they had chariots. No one goes, ooh, right? But you really should go, ooh, because that, that's the modern-day equivalent to tanks, right? They roll up in these tanks, and you've got these little Israelites sitting there with a spear or a sword, no tank, no, no chariots, no none of that. And it's very, very interesting, right? This is why we read Deuteronomy, even the weird laws in that book, right? Uh, God commanded Israel no tanks, I mean no chariots, right? There was laws, you can read it in Deuteronomy, where the king was not allowed to amass horses. Why? Because they weren't allowed chariots. Why? Because if they amassed horses and chariots, they'd stop depending in God to win the battle and they'd start depending in their own horses, in their own chariots, God says to Moses in Deuteronomy 20, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, don't be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt is with you. He will fight for you. But they were afraid, except for Shema, who took his stand in the middle of the field and struck down the Philistines and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And do you notice, it's, who is it that's bringing the victory? Is it Eliezer? Is it Shema? Did they use their energy, skill, courage and foresight? Heck yeah. But notice, it is the Lord who brings the victory. They're not sitting back waiting for God to smite their enemies. They are using everything they've got. Everything they've got, even though God said that he would fight for them. They use everything and the Lord brings about a great victory. These men are the embodiment of the promise God made to Moses, aren't they? Don't be afraid. There's one of you in a field of lentils. Don't be afraid. I'm going to fight with you and for you. And so notice what a promise can do for someone. Do God's promises make you take extraordinary risks because you don't fear what's going to happen. These men, they believe the promise and so what do they do? They take a risk and they stand firm. 800 men coming towards you. I take it the reason 
he had to fight 800 and kill them all was because everyone else had run away, right? Josheb Bashabath. He stands firm. 800 men coming towards him. Nah, he's immovable. Eliezer with his king in a field, taunting the Philistines, saying, come on, we're going to take you. There are only two of us. We're going to smash you guys, an army of 300 men. We don't, I don't care. They stand there, stand firm, until Eliezer's hand, it freezes to the freaking sword. And he's just standing put, fighting one after the other. And Shamar is standing in front of the ancient equivalent of Woolies. He doesn't want these Philistines taking his kids' lunch, right? He's going to fight these guys. And he does. He stands. They stand for... You know what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He says, Brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The promise stands to us. Friends, stand firm because some of you are tired from being a Christian and from serving your king and your hand bloody hurts and it's about to freeze to that guitar, to that sound desk, to those chairs, to that soup kitchen utensil, whatever it is. And God says, stand firm. Some of you are scared and you've started to face what Jesus promised when he said that hardship, even persecution, would come upon his followers. And you're facing that. And you're tempted to run with all of Israel. And here's my thing. How do you know whether this isn't the 799th thing in your path? You've only got one more hardship to go. Keep fighting, Vine Church. Stand firm. Aspire to be like these three men. By standing firm. Secondly, aspire to be devoted like the unnamed three. Aspire to be devoted like the three warriors. Look at verse 13. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Okay, so it's harvest time, which is hot and dry weather. It's time for every man to go home and harvest the crops so that you had food for the following year. And three of the 30, whose names were not given, but they're part of the group of the 30 of David's most loyal troops. These are his crack SAS troops, most dependable. And they hear that David's hiding out in a cave in Adullam while a raiding band of Philistines are walking through the land and they leave their crops at harvest time, that's like an accountant leaving work early at the end of the financial year, right? You know, it's like a dancer leaving stage on opening night. Why? Because they hear their king needs them. Oh, so devoted these men are. Look at verse 14. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and he said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, which is his hometown. So David's hiding out in a fortified cave and here we see his physical thirst comes alongside his emotional thirst and his spiritual thirst even. And he says, Man, what I wouldn't do to have a beer with my community group right now. 
Heck, I'd love that right now up at the local tap house, just me and the boys from my community group. That would be amazing. And he's under enormous pressure as a leader. He's stressed out of his brain. The enemy are right near his hometown. And he has this momentary outburst of nostalgia and three of his men, they overhear him, don't they? And they hear him just speaking to himself this. And so verse 16, these three warriors, they broke through Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. Oh, what devotion. These men had for their king, they don't secretly slither to Bethlehem, do they? Under the cover of night. No, they've got to fight through enemy lines. They fight through, take a round trip of perhaps 40 kilometers behind enemy lines. You know, they get to Bethlehem where there's a Philistine garrison and there are just streams and streams of these men coming and two of them are fighting them off while this other guy is kind of looking around, goes down to the well, fills up a little jug. <laughs> and all the Philistines go, what the heck are they doing? They're like, we're getting a cup of water for our king. And they take it back to their king. You know, they could have gone anywhere for water. It wasn't physical thirst, though, that David was struggling under, was it? These men, they see their king under an enormous stress. And these men think, how can we encourage our king right now? I know, let's get him a drink from his local. They do it to encourage him. You know, last year I was going through a particularly hard time. And I see him out there. Ben Waterhouse wrote me this letter. And it was like a drink from the stream of Bethlehem. It was greatly encouraging. But look at what David does with this water. Look at verse the end of verse 16. He refused to drink it. He poured it out before the Lord. He says, far be it from me, Lord, to do this. To you and me, this sounds like an insult. But to his men, this would have aroused their admiration. He says, is it not the blood of men who, at the, who went at the risk of their lives, and he would not drink it. You see, this water represented the blood of his men, and he will not risk his men's lives for his own comfort, will he? David is not the kind of king who sits on high while his men risk their lives just to get him a cup for his own personal indulgence. He is there with them in battle. He thinks, God forbid that I place my desires over the lives of those that serve me. Heck no. He's not this whimsical tyrant expecting all people to meet his every need. He doesn't view his men's lives as being expendable at all. And so he would not drink, but he pours it out in worship before the Lord. No wonder his men were devoted to him. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. And I wonder whether we need to aspire to their devotion. How devoted they were to their king. Are you that devoted? Is the honor of your king the main passion in your life? Are you jealous for the honor of his name? Are you troubled when it remains unknown? Are you hurt when it's ignored, indignant when it's blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it should be given the honor and glory which are due it? David acknowledges that he wasn't worthy of this kind of loyalty, but Christ is, isn't he? You know, there are some Christians who remind me 
of stainless steel. <laughs> They're clean, very, very clean, but just cold and not very appealing. They do very little wrong. They're very good at avoiding sins. They're not very warm or loving or generous or passionate. It's not very obvious that the greatest love in their life is Jesus Christ. I think that's because we're far too concerned about being cool. We put on the protective cloak of irony and we distance ourselves from anything great by criticising it. Have you found yourself doing that? Now, I can't let people know that I like this thing that much, so let me just criticise it. You know, we maintain our coolness and we retreat into a cocoon and take our cues from a culture that is aggressively indifferent. What could you find in our culture for which men and women would gladly give their lives? Our culture is incapable of heroism. Because you're only a hero if you risk your life for something. But what would people in our culture risk their lives for? To get too invested is to invite a label. right? For people to know, oh, you really, really love Jesus Christ? They'll label you, won't they? And you'll start undergoing persecution. And so I think God is calling us to aspire to the devotion of these three warriors, to wear our hearts on our sleeve, to not be unaffected or cool, but to have a burning, hot, passionate zeal for the Lord Jesus. Amen? Okay, so at that, come on, right? Where's your earnestness, Vine Church? A burning, hot, passionate zeal for the Lord Jesus. Amen? Okay, thank you very much, right? Okay, that's secondly. Thirdly, I think... God would have us aspire to the fearlessness of the two. Have a look at Abishai, the brother of Joab, verse 18. Son of Zuriah was chief of the three. I think that's chief under the three. He raised his spear against 300 men, whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Okay, this guy, he didn't kill 800 like Josheb Bashabath. But 300's pretty good, and the three guys at the top, they take notice of this guy. Now, this brother, he's the brother of Joab, (laughs) the son of Zuriah. I don't know what Zuriah fed these boys, but these boys are crazy, right? They're just these bloodthirsty, fearless, audacious men. Sometimes they're a little bit too bloodthirsty, and David's like, come down, dude, just calm down. And one day, a giant intimidates David and says, I'm going to kill you, King David. And uh, Abishai goes out and fights the giant. The giant dies and Abishai wins. He's a a great guy. But next, verse 20, we come to my favorite. We all know my favorite. His name is Beniah. I wanted to call my boy Beniah. Liz wouldn't have it. He's called Archer instead. You know, very, very manly Archer. You know, he's got a weapon in his hand at least, but he's not Beniah. This guy is my favorite. Verse 20, Benaiah, son of Jehodiah, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, he performed great exploits. And we hear about three of these great exploits. He goes up against three enemies, against impossible odds, and he wins. So look at the first one. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. Not one, but two. Next one. He also went down into a pit 
on a snowy day and kill the lion. Right? This is incredible. I love this one. Only three people in the Bible have killed a lion. Right? It's Samson when the spirit descends on him as the judge of Israel and he tears this lion apart with his bare hands. Right? The next one's King David himself when as a shepherd he grabs a lion by the mane, struck it and killed it and rescued the sheep from its jaws. And here again, not the spirit-filled judge, not the spirit-anointed king, but just one of the boys. Right? And he kills this lion. I love it. Now the lion stands for what cannot be beaten. A prowling, prowling around, waiting to devour. And notice Benai, he doesn't just defend himself like the first three. He doesn't just stand firm. Right? He and Abishai, they're, they're the men that just go out picking, picking fights wherever they go. And he goes after the lion, which was in a pit, which I think was a storage place uh, where they'd store their food. So it was a problem. And he goes up against the lion, which is the worst possible opponent in a pit, which is the worst possible place to fight a lion, on a snowy day, which is the worst possible circumstance to fight a lion in a pit, right? I've seen a lion once, Singapore Zoo, there's this river and this steep wall between it. If I'm going to fight a lion, I want a gun, some armor, big spikes, and lots of nooks and crannies to hide. Not so... Benaiah, right? He goes up against this angry lion. How do we know it was angry? It's winter. He hasn't eaten in a while, right? So he's, a, you know, he's in a small pit. You've got no room to maneuver, right? There's nowhere to hide in a pit. And that's not right. It's snowing. So Benaiah's freezing. The lion's freezing. It's snowing. It's wet. It's muddy. You're slipping all over the place. Nowhere to hide. Up against this. And he goes up against it and he smashes it. Here is Benaiah, the worst possible of enemies, worst possible places, and the worst possible conditions, and he won. Incredible. How did he win? Well, King David tells us how he won, because King David had fought a lion, do you remember? And he tells us about the lion that he killed in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this is what he says. He says, when a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. And I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, and I struck it, and I killed it. Okay, who is he crediting the death of the lion? Uh, what's he crediting the death of the lion to? Him, his strength, his skill, his valor. But notice what he says next. He says, verse 37 of 1 Samuel 17, The Lord rescued me from the poor of the lion, and the poor of the bear. You see, here is what you need to be a mighty man of God. Not just blind fearlessness, but God-dependent fearlessness. A humble confidence that it is God who rules time and chance and that my life is safe in his hands. Risk, therefore, it's right. And the reason is not because God promises success to all our risky initiatives, No, there is no promise that every effort for the cause of God will succeed, at least not in the short run. Do you remember John the Baptist? He risked calling King Herod an adulterer because he divorced his wife and hooked up with his brother's wife. And so he called the king an adulterer. And for this, John got his head chopped off. He risked his life for the cause of God and truth and was killed for it. 
And it's my guess, John the Baptist from heaven is saying, that was a risk worth taking. You know, Jesus had no criticism for him, only the highest possible praise. He did right to risk his life even for the cause of Christ. How many graves are there in Asia and Africa? Because thousands of young men and women missionaries were freed by the power of the Holy Spirit for courageous, risk-taking, sharing the gospel with those that had never heard of Jesus and who worshipped another God. And so now what about you? Are you caught in the enchantment to security, paralyzed from taking any risks from, for the cause of Christ? Or have you been freed from the power of the Holy Spirit, from the mirage of safety and comfort? Will you stand firm like Eliezer, stand with your king and not give in? And will you stand and be fearless like Beniah and place your life in the Lord's hands? But wait, there's more to Beniah. Don't forget, look at verse 21. He struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Beniah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Matt Patterson, can I ask you to come down? I haven't asked you to do this. Come on, come on down. Can you, can you welcome him? All right, Matt, hop up. Sorry, I didn't ask you if this was cool. All right, so how tall are you? Six foot eight. Six eight, all right. Imagine, imagine I, uh, I think this, we, we learn in Chronicles that this guy was seven foot four, right? So a little bit taller than Matt. Imagine Matt with a telegraph pole, right? And that is what Benai goes up against. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> all right, he goes up against this giant, seven foot four with a, a weaver's rod, which was the size of a telegraph pole. And what does he have? He's got a club. You know what a club is? It's just a piece of wood, right? He goes up, he snatches the rod and spears this guy in the heart. Don't you love it, all right? I'm sorry if this is a little bit bloodthirsty, this one. All right, such were the exploits, verse 22, of Benaiah, son of Jehudah, right? So you know why I wanted to call my son Benaiah. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors, he was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three, and David put him in charge of his bodyguard, right? If, I, if, he, if I've got enemies, that's the dude I want standing in front of me, and that's the guy David picks. And so I think God would have us aspire to the fearlessness of these two warriors, right? Think uh, that in this room there would be stories of men and women who perform great exploits for the sake of their king, Jesus, men and women who realize that life is a gift, that safety is a mirage, and that risk is right, because I don't know what the outcome may be, but I'm called to be strong and courageous and take risks that only make sense because God is king, and my life is safe with him. Now, don't be mistaken. God isn't making you a promise that if you take risks, your life will avoid death or disaster. That's what makes life risky. It's what makes being a Christian incredibly risky. You know, because you don't know what's going to happen. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? They, what they said to King Nebuchadnezzar when he threatened them with the fiery furnace if they would not bow down to the golden idol that he had made. Do you remember what they say? Daniel chapter 3, they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, listen to how polite they are in this. 
but how daring they are. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Sheer utter risk. We believe our God will deliver us from this. But he may not. And if he doesn't, too bad. I'm not worshipping your false god. They don't know how it will turn out. And they say virtually the same thing Esther says that we'll see her say next week. When she says, if I perish, I perish. And they say exactly what Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 21 where he says this. And listen carefully because this could be required of you. Jesus says, you'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Jesus teaches that life as a Christian is risky and some of you, some of you, not all of you, there's chance, there's possibility, right? Some of you, he says, will be put to death and Christians are dying all over the world this year. Some of you Christian people in this world will be put to death. And who knows, one day even your life, fine church, our life may be required from us. But isn't it strange that Jesus says, they will put some of you to death, but not a hair on your head will perish? What does this mean? Some of you will die, but your hair won't die. (laughs) It'll just keep growing in the grave. What on earth is he saying? What he's saying here is that God's love for us doesn't eliminate our suffering. On the contrary, our very attachment to Christ will bring suffering. And yet, God has the power to bring us through suffering, even bring us through death, so that not a hair on your head will perish. He's speaking about heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? That's the opposite of taking a risk for Jesus. In other words, you can risk your soul by protecting your life. Or you can risk your life by placing your soul in the security of allegiance and obedience to Jesus. And he says, take your pick. You can risk your life, you can risk your soul by protecting your life. Or you can risk your soul, or you can risk your life by placing your soul in the security of allegiance. So, friends, aspire to the fearlessness of these two men at the great risk of, ex- of experiencing things that wouldn't make you cower but fight. And finally, 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 finally. Aspire to be known like the 30. Look at verse 24 to 39. Here we're given a list of names. We're not told what they've done. You know, for some of these men, this is the only time they are mentioned in the Bible, but their king knows what they've done, doesn't he? And he remembers their names. Now, I wonder whether sometimes you're reading through the Bible, you get to a list of names and you're like, what the? You know, like, how is this meant for my edification and encouragement? A list of names. Well, here he goes, right? 
This list should encourage you, Christian person. I take it that very few of us will go down in history the way Benaiah or Josheb Bashabath have gone down in history. We're like the 30, aren't we? Loyal, devoted to the king, but our stories are hidden from the pages of history. But they're not hidden from your king. He knows your name. Doesn't that edify you and encourage you? It does me. He knows your name. He knows the joyful sacrifices that you have made and you will make this year for him. He knows the challenges you're facing. He does know them and how you're immovable like Shema. He knows how sore your hand is from serving others and holding on like Eliezer. He knows your love and devotion like the three unnamed men. And he knows your fearlessness. No one else knows that about you, do they? They don't know the full story about the risks and the sacrifices that you're making. And you know what? That doesn't bother you, does it? I guess. Because you have one master. He is Lord of heaven and earth and he is your king. And he knows your name. You know, the thing with taking risks like many men in this chapter is that it can be very lonely taking risks like these men. And very often that's because you're the only one standing. Everyone else has run away. And you're thinking of others and you're loving others and you're serving others. But as you do that, is anyone thinking of me? And the answer is yes, someone is thinking of you. You will be remembered and you will have a name. In other words, there is security. There is enormous security in being known and loved by your king. And that is what makes risk possible. So come and have a look at verse 24. Among the 30 were Kirsty, daughter of David, of the tribe of those warriors who carry a red leaf of a fern. Do you know who I'm talking about? Bob, the Bendigoite. Brad, the son of Greg, a Kiwi. Nick, the brother of Micah, of the tribe of Chua. Helena, daughter of Barbara, wife of Elliot, a Surrey hillbilly. Cameron, brother of Lachlan and Carl, son of Ken, who went down into a pit of a new church plant and with Hannah, the Jansenite, killed off the lion of bad graphic design and gave us this. Marcia, from the country of Ireland. Kelvin, the brother of living from St. Peter's. Larry, the meat man, who during springtime overheard myself longing for pork as I said, oh, that someone would get us a pig on a spit for the Vine Church birthday. So mighty man Larry broke through Sydney traffic and transported a pig back to Vine Church and we ate it with gladness and thanksgiving except for our beloved vegetarians. <laughs> Kerry from the plains of Albury-Wodonga, Dave from the tribe of Butterworth, a Kaurahite, Bron from the hill country of Dural, a Zuckerite, and Grant, Grant, son of Mike from Palmerston North, who once took on a giant number of chairs to be set up at church, but stood firm and set them out until his hand froze to the trolley. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. You know, I could go on, I could tell everyone's story in this room and you don't need me doing that because your Lord and your Saviour has got stories 
to boast about you when we enter into his glory. Because to be honest, no human leader deserves the honor. These three, these men showed Davis. David, did you notice the last man mentioned on the list? Cast your eyes down right at the end. Have a look at verse 39. Uriah the Hittite, and he gets mentioned, and he gets the last mention. And it's very, very clear what this is saying. Do you know who Uriah was? He was the loyal warrior of David while out on military service defending the king's business and his kingdom. What does David go and do? He goes and hooks up with his wife, sleeps with her, makes her pregnant, and then he's like, crap, I've got to cover this up. And he has one of his most loyal men killed on the front line. Too right he deserves a name on this list with such faithful and loyal devotion to his king. But gee whiz, what does this say about David? The list ends with the one who is betrayed by the king. And here is the list of the men who are loyal to this king. Well, what does this teach us? It teaches us that no human leader is perfect. And sadly, many Christian leaders have hurt people, even in this room. And no doubt I have and will, I'm sorry, hurt you if you are part of this church. Because I'm not a perfect leader either. But what this makes us long for, doesn't it? It makes us long for the perfect king who knows us by name, who doesn't betray his people, who serves his own subjects. David was a great king, but he wasn't this. But he makes us all long for a king who would be this for us. You know, for those of you who aren't yet Christians, this is what God is offering you today. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world as the rightful king of our world. And for some crazy, idiotic reason, we reject him. Because it's crazy. Because look at this king. You see a king we've all dreamt of serving. Whether you're a Christian or not, religious or not, a believer or not, we all dream of serving in some greater cause than, than, than just our own lives. You've dreamt of this. You see, he stood in a field one day when three great enemies, Satan, sin and death, came towards us with the ferocity of 800 trillion men. And yet he stood between us and them, did he not? He stood firm and destroyed our enemies for us. Satan no longer has a power over those that are in him. He no longer has power to accuse us because our king paid the debt for our sin and our guilt. Sin no longer has mastery over us because our king has set us free to please God. And death has lost its sting because he died and rose. And we too will die, but we will rise to inherit eternal life. You see, he went into the pit with a lion on a snowy day, the worst enemy, worst place, worst occasion, and defeated the lion of sin and Satan and death who threatened to destroy. He stood firm in a garden. Everyone left him. And he stood until his, his own hand was nailed to a cross. You see, he is a king who doesn't look on your risky acts of devotion and take them for granted. No, he is the king who for you didn't just risk his life, he gave his life so that you would enjoy the waters of eternal life. What is it that makes a mighty man or a mighty woman in the kingdom of Jesus? It's humble confidence that the risks they take, whatever they are, will work out for the king's glory and the good of others. 
whether it comes at the cost of their lives or not. They believe that to live is Christ, but to die and go to be with Christ is better by far. They are daring and bold and fearless and devoted and steadfast, unmovable, because they know that their king will remember them. They know it isn't just the skillful who have a name, but all who offer even just a cup, even just a cup of water in his name, who are known and remembered by their king. If he isn't your king, I'm pretty excited about him, right? If he isn't your king, I want you to just check him out. That's what I'd love for you to do. Come along to Christianity Explored starting February. Who's, who's been to Christianity Explored? I'm looking at Cammy. Did you love it, Cammy? <laughs> All right, you will... You'll be introduced to Jesus. They're really non-threat. I won't yell and scream and get all passionate like this right at that. It will be very objective analysis of the life and claims of Jesus. I'd encourage you to come along to that. But if you are a Christian and he is your king, will you stand firm this year and be utterly devoted to him and be fearless for his cause because he knows your name? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we praise you that there's a book up there with our names written in it and our exploits. And Father, for some of us, we're like, our exploits are so petty. And yet you know them. Sometimes we're weighed down by them. And yet you remember us. Oh, that we'd live in devotion to you, our King. And Father, for those who aren't sure where, where you're at and where they're at tonight, we pray that they wouldn't let the urgent crowd out the important of their lives. And Father, I offer up a prayer for them that if you really are out there, you would show yourself to them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.